Welcome one and all to Funkatopia Live. I am your host, Mr. Christopher, and it is an honor to have somebody that I have followed for, good Lord, 40 years of my life. And it's such an honor to have him on the show, Mr. Jamie West Orem. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thanks, Mr. Christopher. It's nice to be on your show. Oh, my gosh. It is. Yeah, for those that don't know who Jamie Westorm is, most of you may be aware of him from uh, the lead guitarist for The Fix. And if you're an 80s baby, well, I was born in 68, but if you're an 80s baby and you listen to a lot of 80s music, you're probably familiar with Saved by Zero, when one thing leads to another, Stand or Fall, I mean, just Red Skies at Night, all of them, Red Skies, all of those amazing songs. And this guy was behind the guitar of all of it. And when I found out that you had a brand new solo album that was coming out that is going to be coming in August of this year, I said, I have to reach out because I've never had anybody from the fix on the show. I've tried, I've reached out, <laughs> but I am very, very honored to have you on the show. And um, man, I tell you what, so where are you now? Uh, I'm I'm in uh, Cornwall in England. Uh, my wife is upstairs. We're at uh, a hotel, um, and we're visiting Bibi's son Marlon and his family. So he's my stepson, and uh, they're a great bunch. You know, we're having a real laugh with them. It's great, and it's beautiful out here. Oh, and that's fantastic! Right at the tail end over the far end of England, away from everybody else. Yeah, I've never been overseas to England, but I'm like looking so forward to it at some point in time. And of course, you know, I would love to see uh, the fix play on their home turf. And uh, I'm not exactly sure where Cy Kernan's home turf is, uh, Cy Kernan being the lead vocals. For those yeah, who don't we're, know. We're, we're never quite sure either, but <laughs> it's uh, California. The rest Thank of us you. live over here in England. Because I saw an interview with him and he was speaking completely in French. And I was yeah. like, yeah. Okay. He's bilingual. He used to live in France. Oh, well, fantastic. All right. So, French, actually. So, we are, um, we're here. I'm interviewing a hero of mine because, again, I've followed Jimmy for 40 years of my life and The Fix as well. Um, it was one of the first concerts I saw by myself was The Fix on the Reach the Beach tour opening for the police on their synchronicity tour. And it was one of those. Obviously, that was such an iconic show because both of you were at the height of your of your career at that point. I mean, that was your biggest selling album. That was probably their biggest selling album as well. And I can't. What What do you remember from those from from those years? I mean, was was that like truly overwhelming? I mean, obviously, the audience size changed quite drastically. But is yeah, there really yeah. really specific memories that you remember from that tour? I, well, everything really exploded, and it was um, a lot thanks to the police that th things went so well for us. Um, yeah, we, we started up opening up for the flock of seagulls, and we did a show with the flock and the police and Joan Jett, lots of others. And the police invited us to onto their tour, and everything, like I said, exploded, and it was a great year for us. So is there it's like a specific memorable show that you were like, wow, this is like 
this this is definitely next level. I mean, Shuttered Room was a very very successful album for the Fix, but you know, once you hit Reach the Beach, and one thing leads to another, is on constant rotation on the radio. You know, what at what point do you say, like, was there a specific moment in that era where you're just like, okay, yeah, we've we've definitely stepped up to the next level here. Uh, well, uh, one of those shows, um, Oakland, uh, California where we played Lost Planes and uh, all these paper plates started flying through the air like flying saucers. I don't think, I don't know if it's anything to do with the song, but it was very apt and it was a surreal moment. 80,000 people out there. Plus, and, they, and they all proactively brought paper plates to the show. I don't know quite how it happened, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it was a... It was oh like, my gosh, well, <clears throat> our first run in actually happened quite uh quite a while ago actually and this I'm, I'm actually well i'm actually going to show you a picture of you and i from many many years ago i think this was the uh elemental tour i think is uh where this was god forbid the goatee <laughs> <laughs> this was many many obviously this many years ago this is elemental so yeah. um <clears throat> but before this i had actually um seen you well you went on to a radio show in atlanta and it was on and you may or may not recall this you probably had a lot of crazy fans i'm sure but i called into the radio station and this was during the release of ink yeah um i called in the radio station and i said he said what song do you want me to play the dj was like what song do you want me to play off this since you're really familiar with the album and i said oh you gotta play shut it out you have to play this song it's an amazing song it will it just and i was like fangirling out on this call like i couldn't breathe i couldn't talk straight it was like i was rambling and um he played it on air and i was so excited that he played it on air because i really felt like that was one of the strong songs that could have easily been a single off of that album and it was just like the whole night just kind of kind of evolved from there because Sai and i believe you also had said yeah definitely come to the show let us know who you are we'll get you backstage blah 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 went to the show Sorry for this story, but went to the show. Obviously, the show was amazing. And then afterwards, I tried to get backstage at the restaurant that was connected to this to the uh, event venue. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have my name at the door. Nothing was going on, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I'm like, so 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 disappointed that I, I'm so disappointed, and I'm just kind of standing there at, at the door. And um, I was like, well, I felt a little dejected, so I started to kind of turn and walk away. Then all of a sudden, you come running around the corner, and you said, Chris. And I was like, Regan knows my name. You grabbed me by the arm, and you brought me backstage, and you said, he's with me. And it was like the rest of the night was me hanging with you guys, and I was just – it was like easily probably one of the best nights of my life, just sitting there hanging at the bar and drinking with Adam and you guys. It was just – it was just an amazing night. So all that to say – one of my greatest fan moments for sure. But um, anyways, I'd love to hear the story of, I'd love to hear the story of, you know, your family growing up and how you navigated into to playing guitar. I mean, were you, were the musicians in your family? Exactly how did that all work? We, yeah, we, we were um, always a music loving family. I'm the youngest of four and uh, my older brother and sisters would buy the, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Kinks and 
those British bands. And uh, in fact, I remember my brother Stephen saying, I've heard this track where the singer stammers, I'm going to get it. And it was my generation. And that, <laughs> that really turned me into a guitar player, well, a, a would-be guitar player, because uh, it was so exciting. So what was one of the first bands that you were in? I guess before that, though, what kind of day jobs did you have before you actually settled into a band? Well, um, that, it, I mean, music was really the only thing I wanted to do, but I had to do other things. I, I, was a, I did roofing for a year, like a, a roofing assistant. I was the guy climbing up and down the ladder with a sack of tiles. So that, you know... That was that a good, not an easy job. good grounding experience. And I drove <laughs> the van, you know, often got lost. <laughs> but anyway, luckily I managed to do what something I could kind of just about do, play guitar, you know, very lucky to have, to have done that, managed to uh, do that for a living. So what are some of the bands that you were in before Prefix? Uh, I... I Kind of, uh, I did quite a lot of small session work. I started out, I'm, I'm going to move to London. I'm just going to meet as many people as possible. And whenever I'm asked to play anything, I'll, I'll do it. I'll help out on demos, this and this and this. So I, I uh, and eventually started getting paid for it. Uh, the band I was with before The Fix, I worked in uh, Philip Rambo's backing band. And he's a, he's a really good, he's originally from Canada. Uh, you kind of think of Van Morrison on steroids kind of thing. Like this is the, the new wave era, a very fast, energetic version of Van Morrison. He's kind of singer-songwriter who should have made it. And in the other two guys, Blair Cunningham and Dave Cocker and the, bass, uh, the bassist and drummer, they were from Memphis. We were working in England. And they were a couple of crazy guys and nobody understood what they were saying because they had these broad uh, Tennessee accents and they were always up to no good, but brilliant players and very nice guys. So I was, I did that. That was just prior to the fix. So were you part, I guess I'm trying to remember what, what the band lineup was prefixed when it was the portraits. Were you in that version? Uh, I, I joined at the point where they decided to. It was it was the band as is now, but with Charlie Barrett on bass at that time. Um, so. and, and I think Alfie was after that. Yeah. And then eventually Dan came. Dan came into the mix after that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Dan arrived on just in time for Sign of Fire on Reach the Beach and. Uh, and stayed nearly almost the whole time since then. Disappeared for a while to play sousaphone, then came back in. And that's the, you know, that's the, that's the best lineup of the fix, really, with respect to the other guys who are also great. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, there was like a lot of, you know, different types of movements. I know Dan had also stepped out in in the two thousands, and I think Tate came in, and so I mean, there's been some some little iterations, but the fact that you are still a full unit with pretty much essentially the original members here four decades later. I mean, what, what do you think contributes to that? I mean, obviously there's a brotherhood among you, but 
you know, what would you say to other bands, you know, to kind of help to prolong some of that longevity if you're in a band scenario? Uh, well, if you if you all believe you've got something, you know, you've got a good a good chemistry music wise, and you can you can get on okay enough to make it work and and not worry about just when you're on the road it's not always plain sailing and you just go yeah okay it's not it's it's a it's kind of a job you know and you you just try and make sure you do the best show you possibly can and then you feel good at the end of the evening because you know yeah we that was a great show or it was you know that was a tricky one but we we nailed it you know because because we want to you know you, and you've got to, you know. So that's what keeps us together. It's the music. Yeah, and I'm been kind of curious about some of the stuff that's going on. I know you guys have moved around with labels uh, here and there, starting out with MCA, which is obviously now defunct. But uh, it was some RCA, and uh, your solo album is going to be in the orchard and everything. Is there something, and I know this is kind of a little bit off base, but I'm curious about it. What's happened with The Fix and Spotify? Because right now, if you go onto Spotify, it has every five seconds, beautiful friction and ink, and that's it. So Reach the Beach is not on, none of the early albums are on there. Um, is there something going on that fixed fans should know about, or, or is there a good place to go? I mean, obviously I have all the vinyl and CDs, but for those who want to kind of do a little bit of crate digging on your material, where's a good place for them to go? Or what's going on with Spotify? That you're yeah. Really um I can't give you this, any real detail on that. I think it's going to hopefully get resolved at some at some point. I can't really, you know, I don't know all the details. Well, I, actually, I'm really not surprised because I know that a lot of artists have had a lot of conflict with Spotify just with, you know, the amount of sharing, uh, I guess just with the amount of revenue that, that it just doesn't make sense. Um, but, yeah, I... I I totally understand that. Totally understand that. Um, you also played, you've played with so many different artists and a lot of people don't, don't know this about you. It's not just being a guitarist for the fix, but you've done a lot of work and sat in with a lot of different sessions. I know you've sat in with Brian Eno. Um, yeah. I know you've sat in with Bob Geldof. There's just been a lot of different artists and um, we'll talk about Tina Turner in a second, but is there like an artist that you've worked with that was just above and beyond that you were just like, I cannot believe that I am in the same studio with this person right now? Uh, well, actually, you mentioned Brian Eno, and really that was one of those ones where um, through Bibi, she they've known each other for a long, long time. They're still great friends. So I met Brian through Bibi, and I knew him socially for a couple of years and I kept thinking, I wonder when he's gonna invite me to play on something. So uh, I kind of, I called him up one day and I said, look, I'd love to play on your, on, I know you're recording, I'd love to play on something, you know, I'll do it for nothing, you know. And, and he said, well, I've just finished, but thanks a lot. And then a few days later, he invited me along. I need some rhythm guitar on something. Uh, he was just around the corner, so, and I, I did, I, I went at last. I'm playing with. I'm working with Brian, and it was great fun, as I thought it would be. Went home, and he said. He, then he called me back. Said, you know, I really like what you did. I'm, I, I, I want to send me a, an invoice. I want to pay you. And I went, even better. <laughs> I remember one one session I did with Brian. 
it was a Depeche Mode track called I Feel You, like a remix. Wow. And I was playing, and Brian was, I had one of these little boss delay pedals where you can change the delay speed and the pitch changes while you do that. So I was playing guitar, and Brian was playing my pedal. <laughs> Turning he was like down on the floor playing yeah, with the Literally that. It was such a lot. And it, I, I like the way it turned out. Wow. So that that's one of many, but, and I played on a few things that Brian was producing and his own stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I'd like to work with him again, but it was, all, it was always great working with Rupert Hine, of course, because he yes. was such a, uh, a fun person to work with and a very nice person. And, Steve Taylor as well, of course. Yeah, you've worked with Steven, you know, for, for quite a bit because, I mean, he's actually part of the production team on the last two Fix albums, if I remember correctly, <clears throat> uh, Beautiful Friction and, and Every Five Seconds. Um, but there was something in the way that Rupert Hine, the way that he produced your albums created this. Well, let me just go ahead and say that, you know, between you and Rupert Greeno, the two of you who is the keyboardist, I'm trying to kind of make sure that anybody who's listening who doesn't know the individual members. Yeah, there are two Rupert's. <laughs> uh, the keyboardist, Rupert Greenall, and and yourself really together create this ethereal, it, it just kind of sets like an environment. Um, and it's just, everything is just very, it's like very otherworldly, the way the, way the two of you work together. And Rupert Hine, producer, uh, yeah. who passed away um what he passed away just a few years ago right yeah, yeah that's sadly yeah yeah in 2020 and um one of the things i note um i noticed was that he really had a way of being able to capture that magic that happened with the band because everybody brought their own little thing i mean Adam's drumming is always just very so succinct and direct he doesn't really need to do anything fancy he just wants to accentuate what everybody else is doing and then Sai is obviously Sai but Rupert Hine really had a way of really crafting your sound to really kind of add these layers to it do you think that um what was some of the I guess watching Rupert Hine work and also to that effect Stephen as well watching them work was there anything that you learned from watching them production wise and said you know this is it's like kind of watching a master class. Is there anything that you can take away from those production sessions? Uh, well, I remember the um, just the 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 good vibes from from both Rupert and Steve, but Rupert Hine uh, just had a very positive way about him generally, and a, a very relaxing person to work with, and very focused and Steve Taylor so fast just incredible just we were at we initially at the farmyard studio and he just knew the place inside out and at the, the first and it was tape it was two inch tape so we'd somebody it could have been Rupert it could have been him could have been someone for the band might suggest oh you know we don't need that those few bars there let's do it again and Steve would just cut the tape in seconds. He'd just splice it before you knew what was happening and it would be a perfect edit. Just examples like that. And 
and knowing his way around all the outboard gear and and Rupert and Rupert's uh, it's hard to diff, to really explain Rupert Hines' role in all this, but just a fantastic presence really and uh, a, a tactful and very kind of sensitive but funny way of explaining what he thought was right or wrong about something. Yeah, very I, into in, into words what he wanted. Yeah, I, that was he was always very. <clears throat> I've just seen you know there's very it was a lot of consistency with the way that he produced. I mean you could listen to, I mean even on his own solo material and some of the random tracks on the Better Off Dead soundtrack and some of the things that he's touched, they all had that sound. Just very, very similar to like your guitar, the way that you play has a very distinct sound. And um, I think that would like be like a really, really big takeaway. Um, and I, I will say that with both Beautiful Friction and also Every Five Seconds, the last two albums of The Fix, I really kind of feel like you, you were able to kind of recapture some of that some of that ambiance that Rupert was able to create. I think it's it's really, really close. And you mentioned Steven and the ability to be able to cut tape. For those who are not studio guys, back in the day, pre-digital, you physically had to cut the tape. And that is like, it, that is an art form in itself. So yeah, you could find somebody that could do it well and not screw it up. Yeah. It was, it was definitely it, doing it confidently and quickly. It's you think, fuck me, what's going on here? You know, but then it's just done in seconds. Yeah, yeah, it's just. And, um, so we did. Yeah, we worked with um, Steve, Stephen Taylor for most of the album, and then two more songs came up, and we did those with Nick Jackson. Nick Jackson recorded those at his own studio on the outskirts of London. Wow. And Nick, Nick's great to work with as well. He's, again, just a very relaxing character and someone who works very fast and concentrates, but it's all very, you know, just rolls along nicely. That's the thing, is that it's organized and it's quick and it's easy and it's, you know, and that's why I ended up working with, with Nick for my own album. Well, I, I think that has got to be one of the characteristics of a producer that you have to have. You can't have somebody that needs just wants to quickly get things done. It's not somebody that's not going to be frazzled. Somebody's going to take their time and pay attention to each one of the individual details because you've got dozens of tracks that are all going at the same time and you got to figure out how to make them all work together. It's you, you absolutely have to have patience. That is a huge, huge part of part of yeah. the production facility. I'm glad you found that in him. Um, I want to watch, play a little bit of a clip here, and uh, I want you to tell me about this day, specifically this video shoot. Hold on just a second. <laughs> So <laughs> I remember that. 
rest in peace. She just passed away yeah. just recently. Um, I guess we can talk about that for a second, but I also, I also want to talk about taking going back in history and talking about this a little bit. Where were we, where were you when you heard that she had passed? Uh, oh, oh, I must have been at home. Um, I think um, at home in England, uh, here in England. Um, and when did I hear about it? I, I can't remember it, but I probably, you know, I usually look at, read The Guardian online, and it's probably one of the first things up there, you know. It, it's all I can say is um, it was it's really sad, not unexpected, uh, but very sad news all the same. So when you kind of think about some of the memories that you have of playing with her, and you obviously are all, all throughout that video, along with Sia's too, um, but when you're watching that video and remembering the day of the, the shoot and everything, I mean, and of course, upon hearing of her passing, what are some of the most memorable things that you can remember from touring and, and just working with Tina? Um, uh, well, um, just in a nutshell, uh, great to work with, as everyone will back me up on this, super professional, um, very nice, but and also... Well, there's no but, just very nice, funny, down to earth, um, uh, always good. Um, one, one of the things I remember, the, the guitar player and uh, uh, James Ralston and, uh, and the guy that plays sax and keyboards, Tim, they would work out every day they, they, in the dressing room before, you know, between the sound check and the show, pulling, lifting weights, really heavy weights. And they uh, they were doing some crazy exercise. They lean over a table, someone holds the legs down and they, they do this, I can't really explain, but something very strenuous. And Tina walks in, she said, get out of the way. And she gets up on the table and she, I think she did about double the number of those push-ups in <laughs> half the time kind of thing very physically strong. Yeah, didn't she have her legs uh, insured for like a million dollars or something like that? It was something ridiculous. It was, I mean, that's not ridiculous now, nowadays, but you know, in the eighties to have your legs insured for a million dollars, a lot, it seems. I, I don't know, I like this, you know, it's a good idea, I don't know. I think it would be worth it, obviously, for sure. Uh, did you ever stay in touch with her at all after the touring and everything? This was obviously with Private Dancer because uh, you had been, again, your your guitar work is just so noticeable uh, on that particular track. And also on um, uh, was the, the other song was uh, I Might Have Been Queen, I think. I Might Have Been Queen, which I got a writing credit for that, which is nice. And I, I played on a couple of tracks on the follow-up album. But uh, I actually... Not only that, I got invited uh, to tour with her. So I did about six weeks around Europe with her band. And that was a great education for me, you know, because it's, it's not, you're not just backing up for some singer, you're backing, you're in the backing band for Tina Turner. Right. It's pretty amazing. Especially yeah. the night when David Bowie got up and joined in as well. Wow. So, now you actually you've worked with David Bowie before, also haven't you? 
But no, that that was it actually. I was really yeah, I worked with David Bowie, but that was the time I worked with David Bowie. Well, that counts. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. And he he was uh, he was incredible. Great to talk to him. Very as I, you know, everyone will tell you, he was very uh, very nice person and very funny and very welcoming kind of thing. So exactly, how did you get actually get involved with Tina Turner in the first place? Uh, that was through Rupert Hine. Uh, Rupert came to one of the fix rehearsals at Nomis in London and uh, just kind of, we were routining one of the albums and he sort of casually asked me, uh, he said, I'm going to be working with Tina Turner uh, in a couple of weeks. Would you like to um, play some guitar on it? And <laughs> I just think about that. No, I didn't. I just said, of course, I said, yes, please, immediately. Nice. That's yeah. fantastic. So that's how that happened. So when you're on tour, what is your go-to what is your go-to guitar for playing? I mean, do you prefer a different guitar when you're in the studio versus performing live? I mean, what obviously you play strats, but I mean, is there a specific guitar you like more than the other that you gravitate towards more? Um, there's um, a, a Sir a John Sir guitar that is really the the go-to um it's a kind of replica of of a, a Schecter that that john put together at uh, i bought it from rudy's in new york in the early 80s but it kind of um i kind of wore it out <laughs> i played that so much i pretty much wore it out so so he very kindly had a replica built which i play a lot it's it's a really solid guitar with very kind of clean but powerful and i've also got a 60 fender 62 replica which i like a lot and i've recently um uh, this guy dave walsh in england has built me a guitar to my specifications that's a eternal guitars and that's uh, that's a beautiful guitar it's a really good one so i'll probably be playing that one a lot uh, they're all great though Okay. And I married my wife unusually encouraged me encourages me to me to buy guitars and she gives me guitars and that's not supposed to happen. Wives normally <laughs> their husbands buying guitars, but I've got the opposite thing. Yeah, so normally when your birthday or Christmas comes around and you see that long box sitting under the tree, you're like, Yeah, I know yeah. what that is. Yeah. Great. <laughs> does she have a good eye for guitars? Does she has is yeah. she pretty knowledgeable? Actually, yeah, she is. She's not a guitar player, but she's um, she knows what sounds good. Well, that's good. So, what about pedals? What I, what are your must-have pedals that you always continue to take? I'm chopping and changing all the time. Again, I'm always I'm always buying lots of pedals that I don't necessarily need, but I just want them. Um, but the MXR Stereo Chorus is something I bought. I've got the one that I bought in 81 or 82. I've still got that and use it. But a friend of mine uh, bought me the same thing uh, as a gift. And uh, and that's in better condition. So I use that when I'm touring because I think it's more likely to last the whole tour. So and, uh, Boss pedals, I love those. Um, I've got a Universal Audio, some of the 
some of their stuff and there's a, a delay pedal of theirs that I love the sound of. It's really rich. Yeah, um, use a lot of delay and a lot of uh, some of that. Let me just say this because, you know, obviously there's a lot of, you know, guitarists like Eddie Van Halen and, and Stevie Ray Vaughan and all those guys that have this, you know, their own distinct style. And when they start doing solos, you know, it, it's it's really a very technical on taking for them, or that's not even a word. But when you do your solos, there is so much going on that I don't think that for those who are not familiar with your playing and are only tuning in because they tune in for everything Funkatopia, I'm going to give a couple examples of some of the solos that you've played over the years and just like, like, like just a couple. But it is the way that you kind of create these this vibe that is just unlike anything else that i i've heard anybody do here's an ex here's one example this one is obviously from uh phantom living this it's just really really short but it's just insane to me how fantastic this sounds That that solo is just pretty weird. It's so simplified and so strange, but it just works so well in the in the arrangement of the song. I mean, that particular song is obviously about phantoms and, and just it's kind of it fits so perfectly. It's like here's another one. This is uh, one we're play one more from outside, which I'm just going to play a clip of. I'm not going to play the whole one because you do a, quite an extensive one at the end of outside, but this is another one from reach the beach. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in a darkened room with headphones on just vibing to that song and just some of your work. And I just have to know your thought process when you're kind of creating and conjuring up. Conjuring has got to be the best word. These solos that just. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty weird solo as well, isn't it? Uh, well, I decided it was it's in D minor. That's mm -hmm. I decided to tune to drop D and just try and make a, a big sound, but with a very, a, I wanted it to sound big, but very clean. Uh, it was a cheap guitar. It was an Ibanez blazer, which I still have. Uh, oh no, I don't have that one because that was with, with the whammy. Anyway, uh, too much detail, but anyway. It's okay. Went in there, tuned it to drop D and just had some fun. And I listened back and thought, that's fucking weird, but <laughs> go with it. <laughs> well, I, I, I always try to figure out, was he under the influence when he wrote this? Because it just seems like you are in the moment. On, on, on all four, the first four albums, you are just in some type of zone that 
is just unparalleled. Um, it's just it's just so different, and um, again, it's just very very otherworldly. I mean, is it really like a long? I mean, I know you kind of explained the process on that that specific solo, but when you're approaching a solo for a song, or you know that you've got to kind of come up with one for a particular track, I mean, how much? What's your thought process as far as, you know, just um, the process in general? Well, uh, usually it's, um, usually I haven't really thought it through and I just, it's kind of um, noodling in a way. <laughs> um, that's, outside was easy because there, there are no chord changes. It's just D minor. Um, I, I'm kind of better than I was with I've I've learned a lot about modes and how different modes fit different chords within a key and the kind of my fretboard knowledge is good and I'm quite geeky in that way and very interested in how scales and modes and chord structures work together so um I, I, I enjoy following chords and working with modes, if you know what they are. They're inversions of scales, in, in, in essence, really. So uh, I don't know that I was doing working in that sort of way in the early days, but that's how I do it now. Yeah, because I didn't know this about you, but I heard that you actually do lectures on music theory now. What, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it kind of all, I, I did go to music college in Leeds uh, a long, long time ago in the 70s. But, um, and then I kind of decided that's, I'm grateful for those years and I learned a certain amount, but I just, then punk happened, which is, right. it was kind of the opposite. Right. You just need like, three chords. I, I went, of course, you really only need two or three chords and a lot of energy and it's going to be great and you and i still go along with that but i've also re i'm re i've revisited the theory side of things and become a total nerd in that way and uh and i i somehow i did a master class at uh, a college called the acm the academy of contemporary music and they then asked if I would do some lectures and I thought I'll try it you know and I found I learnt a lot by doing that because if you if you have to explain music you have to really clarify things in your head and uh, it's become uh, almost an, an obsession of mine to get to the root and the it's all about, I don't really know. It's like uh, learning the chromatic, looking at the chromatic circle and the cycle of fifths. And and it's a bit like um, wanting to break rules. But if you don't know what the rules are in the first place, it's harder to break them. But if you, and there aren't any really any rules in music, but learning how it works and the emotional effect of specific notes within a chord, within a key, that sort of thing. And therefore, this flat, 
that's weird. And it's a nice machine in the background. <laughs> if a, what effect, say, if an augmented fourth is going to ha have on the audience in this context, or if I play a flattened second instead of a major second. Right. Kind now, of like, yeah, anyway, I could go on, but... Oh, absolutely. No, and, and I love this stuff. But when you're listening to the radio and you're hearing songs on the radio, I, I, I tend to listen to the radio and now there's like certain stations. I, well, I, I see this, this certain song structures that kind of just get templated over and over and over again. Yeah. Does it kind of really frustrate you when you kind of listen to the radio and you're like, God bless, can we like move on from this structure? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm there's a lot of I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of great stuff, but there's also a lot of stuff that really is very lazy, I think. Lazy songwriting, very obvious, chord, predictable chord sequences and vocal lines. I'm, a lot of them are hits, though, so who am I to criticize, you know? Yeah, I mean, well... Uh, and, you know, and you know what gets me? I don't want to be neg too negative, but the kind of male... <laughs> singers who sound like they're crying <laughs> i don't like it I, I love the old some of the old soul uh, and funk yes. where the, the male singer is in falsetto it's different from the kind of do you know what i mean the miserable sounding right self-pitying kind of <laughs> male yes. singers. and speaking about falsetto um i don't know if you knew this but i was reading a biography from Morris Day, who sings with the time, uh, Prince's offshoot. Yeah. And uh, the, the book is called On Time, A Princely Life in Funk. And I um, actually have a, a picture of the cover of this biography. Yeah. And as I was reading this, he talks about how Prince was really into the fix, was really into you guys. And other new wave acts too. He was really close with Gary Newman and Kate, you know, Kate Bush and all that. But were you even aware that Prince was vibing on the fix at all? Not at all. No, no, <laughs> that's amazing. As I'm reading this biography, all of a sudden my worlds collided because I'm like, I, I am a huge, huge Fix fan, and obviously a huge Prince fan. So I'm sitting here reading this biography, then all of a sudden. The world's collided. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? Have you ever crossed paths with with Prince at all? Or, I mean, no, I never did. No. And it's it's just unbelievable to me. You were just talking about falsetto, and that obviously, you know, uh, thought about well, that's that. That's okay. That's okay. What the way he did it, that's cool. But I'm I don't want to name names, but some of the. Some of the British singers, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> but it's okay when Prince did it and when Curtis Mayfield sang those in a kind of high falsetto sound. Very, I don't know. It's just the the kind of conviction behind it. I think. Yeah, absolutely. It. You got to be able to do it masterfully, or just don't do it. Just yeah, don't, just don't do it. But when you're teaching. Uh, and this is this last question that I'm going to talk about your brand new album that's coming out in August. But when you're teaching and you see these younger kids that are aspiring musicians, I mean, is there like one piece of advice you find yourself giving them on a regular basis, like something that you consistently talk about or, or that you pass on? 
Um, I, I, I always encourage them to experiment and uh, don't take the easy way out. Don't take the safe option. You know, just take a, you know, take a risk, take, try and I'd say that, that's, that works really well, but why not just experiment a bit more with the rhythms and try, try some, try a different chord here or don't change chord there, leave the chord going and change the bass line. I'm always, I give them these weird experiment, musical experiments to try. Yeah. That's cool. That's really awesome. So, I want to talk about it here because I'm really obviously excited about it because when I heard about it, I was just beside myself. But you have a brand. It's actually the graphic that is behind us right now. You have a brand new album coming out in August called Skeleton Key. Uh, I can't remember the specific date in August. Uh, uh, no, I can't. I, I should really. I think it might be the 18th, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it's somewhere in the middle of the month, but again, produced by Nick. Um, so... Yeah. What I, here's the questions I have on this. What kind of sounds can we really expect on this album production wise? I mean, for Fix fans, let's just say, because nope, first off, you've never done a solo album. You That's know, right. so, so, so my biggest question to you is like, why are you just now doing this four decades into your career? What, what changed that you were like, you know what? I need to do this now. Um, I'll tell you when I recorded most of it, it, it wasn't that recent. It was um, in the years 20 and 21. And we all know what was happening. Yeah, right. That time, and how nobody could go anywhere. No one could mix, that sort of thing. So I got on with, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to record at home. So I, um, I put these tunes together, recorded it. I, everything you hear... Nick recorded the live drums, which were done at the end. I recorded everything else and used, I played MIDI drums as a guide. Um, and that's how I, you know, I had a, compared to most people, I had a very easy time because I had something to do. And uh, so I, I uh, there are four songs with me attempting to sing. And they are very much kind of topical to that time, but hopefully they're still relevant now. Yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm so excited to hear it because I have no idea what to expect. I mean, even when Cy Kernan, lead singer for The Fox, Fix, when, when he does a solo album, you kind of get an idea of, you kind of have an idea of what it's going to sound like because it's just, Cy has a very, very distinct sound. But with you... Yeah. They, nobody knows what this is going to be like. I mean, I'm going to play a little, a brief clip of Knuckle Down here, which is the first single uh, off of this. But if we're looking at the overall album production wise, and again, for Fix fans, if you had to compare the production of it with like a past Fix album, because every single album kind of has its own, you know, sound like raw, like ink or uh, really ethereal. I keep going back to that word of phantom phantoms. Um, what what would you compare it to production wise to like a past fix album what vibe the well the vibe um it's well funny enough rupert our rupert from the band happened to show up he was visiting nick and he didn't even know that i'd be there we were mixing 
I was mixing with, with Nick and he came to visit Nick and he sat in on it and I think he quite liked it and he went, this is different. It's very psychedelic. So it's kind of, I know what he means. There's something psychedelic maybe about it. It's, and I, I wanted it to have a, to, I like music when it takes you somewhere new. Right. So there are some quite strange chords, chord changes, maybe quite jarring, not on all of them, but on some of the tracks, there's some quite jarring chord changes, which is what I wanted. Um, some of it, like Knuckle Down, is quite hard, hard funk kind of thing. Uh, others, uh, there's, there's some quite very ambient stuff. Uh, there's some this and that, but there's lots of experimentation going on. Uh, I'm so excited to hear it. Let's actually listen to a little bit of a clip of Knuckle Down. This is a real short clip, but to give people an idea of what that sounds like from the funk side of things. So that is a little clip of Knuckle Down, which, again, I was just surprised when I heard it. I was like, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that from you. So I'm really excited. I don't know if there's any other tracks that are going to be very similar to that, but that's very, really, really cool. And I know that Fix fans are excited, too, to hear what's coming from you. Tell me about this album cover for the single, Knuckle Down. Uh, oh, the, the, the Fist, that was... That was my mate, um, uh, Gus Campbell, who actually I do music with him. He's one of these people that is good at lots of things. And I, at the last minute, I realized I needed a, an image for the digital single. Just come up with something, Gus, quickly. So, <laughs> and he sent me that, and I went, okay, that's great. Um, can we get permission to use that? I thought he found it somewhere. And he said, no, I just, I just use a scanner. You know, these sc copy of scanners things. That's my fist landing on the scanner. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's that one. The, the album cover was done by my son, Jack. Uh, oh, that is very, very cool. This is, uh, this is actually a crude version of, of that. And it wasn't the cur curly fish. It was like a, like a just very primitive cartoon fish with a key as a tail. So Jack that's did really, that. That's very cool. How old is Jack now? Uh, I think he's six, 36. He's 36. Oh. The other way around. Yeah, because yeah. you and your wife have been married for almost 40 years now. How, how long have you been married? Somewhere close to that. Uh, we've been together for 38 years. Oh, congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and this album cover is very, very cool because I see a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of album covers. Obviously, we get a lot of music submitted to us, and some of these album covers are just cringe-worthy. That's the only word I can think of. And this is a very, very cool, very, very cool album cover. And if you look closely on this Knuckle Down single uh, cover, if you look closely at the top finger, that fish is actually 
in that very top finger, which is really kind of cool. It's just, yeah. it's kind of just hidden in there. I think that's, that was very, very slick. Yeah. Well, that, actually I have to give Gus credit because he's a, you know, he, he likes the image that Jack came up with. So he dragged that into the, somehow dragged it into the knuckle. Thing. Uh, well, that is very awesome. So uh, from what I understand, you are playing all or a majority of the uh, instruments here. I've never seen you play anything other than guitar. I think I've seen you with a bass in your hand uh, maybe one time. Yeah. The, so the, that decision. Some of the tracks you, you're going to think you can hear keyboards, but it's actually guitar. I don't yeah. think I've played anything other than uh, guitars and bass and voice. Um, and uh, Tom, this guy, Tom Ashcroft, played live drums at the last minute. I wrote down all the, I notated the, all the drum parts. Tom can sight read. Uh, he did all, all 10 tracks in two days. He just, you know, put the music in front of him. He read it and got most of it in a couple of takes. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, is, that, is he the only other player on this album besides yourself? Uh, oh, my, actually, Bibi, my wife, um, does some French whispering, I'd like to call it, which is what it is on one of the tracks. Wow, very uh, cool. it's, a, it's a song called Collusion Blues, and uh, that's all I'm going to say. And she just did some of the backing singing on, uh, on that one. And she'll get songwriting credits, of course. Uh, <laughs> I should have thought of that, but uh, <laughs> oh, she'll get the benefit of it anyways. I'm sure. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds great. You, the French whispering. Listen out for that on Collusion Blues. So, are you going to possibly tour to support this album? Is that a I'm, thought? No, no plans to do that. No. Because I mean, one of the reasons why I ask is obviously I see that the fix I on the site is going on tour again starting in November. And I'm very excited that you're actually coming driving distance from where I'm at, about an hour away in Athens, Georgia, uh, very yeah. close to my birthday in November. So I'm really looking forward to that. Is it just to go out and see fans again, or is there anything specific that you're touring to support with The Fix? And the second part of that question is, would it possibly be out of the norm or out of the world of possibility that maybe some of these solo tracks show up on that tour? Uh, I think that's, I'd love to say maybe, but actually I think there's, there's zero chance of that happening. Why? It seems like such a great idea. I'm sure all the fans would love to see that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's really my place to. I know, but. Well, you got me thinking now anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Because it seems like I've seen Cy do his so some solo stuff on, on the tour before. Did I not? Uh, I don't know. Don't think so. Uh, maybe it, I just think it would be a great idea. Sprinkle in some some Asai solo stuff. Sprinkle in a couple of tracks from your solo album, and I don't think the fans would complain whatsoever. Not at all, for sure. Okay, just, you got me thinking now. I'll throw it out there. Just yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing. The exciting thing that's happening is that we're going to be playing in London. So we're playing in our own country for the first time in about twenty years. Uh, but that's in December, 14th of December, at the garage, yeah. garage, garage, however you want to call it. Right. 
So, uh, yeah, I saw that was closing out the tour, which I was just like, well, because everything that you're doing, I think you had some shows in Texas. You're going all up and down the East Coast, yeah. um, not doing anything California-wise. Um, you know, maybe that might change somewhere in there. But for now, um, I'm just excited as you guys are even close. But all that being said, Jamie Westorm, it is an absolute delight and honor, as I've said before multiple times here, to have you on Funkatopia. I, I'm one of my all-time favorite bands. I've my vinyl collection of the fix is like huge because I think I got every single 12 inch that I could and random import that I could find. I have a very, very extensive fix collection, but I cannot wait to see you guys in November. Uh, I will absolutely let you know that I'm there for sure. Uh, you're playing at the Georgia yeah. Theater in Athens in November. But yeah, come and heckle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've got to get some backstage pass to be able to hang with you guys and, and whatnot. But um, Jamie, thank you so, so much for your time. Looking forward to this brand new solo album, your first solo album, Skeleton Keys, coming out in the middle of August. Everybody just kind of keep keep an eye on that. And of course, where you guys don't know the fix very well, please keep an eye on Spotify. I'm sure all that stuff will work out and their music will come back Uh I'm looking forward to yeah. that as well because it's always good to have like a little mix going on. Sure. Okay. Well, say, say hello to BB for me and uh, we'll do. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for joining us and we'll talk to you later. Thank you so, so yes, much. Thank Jamie. you for having me and thanks everyone for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Talk to you later. Thank you.